You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, we sing a song from Phantom of the Apple, the musical. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas, and guess what, Thomas? This is my 100th episode. (gasps) Oh my god, that's so great. It makes me, Thomas Mariani, just want to sing! Don't! Don't! (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I I will save the audience that. Uh, But Adam, uh, for the first time in a bit, we actually have a guest on for the evening. It's not just the two of us here. Uh, Returning for the first time in about a year since our stop-motion episode, way back in episode 50. It's uh, Mr. Scott Johnson. Scott, welcome back. Hey, hey, hey! It's Scotty J! Oh man, time for the mandatory fitness bit of our program. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wait i didn't decide this oh, that's true We're, none of us really want to do the fitness right now but thank you scott for joining us this evening um and uh you know we're doing musicals and uh you're a big fan of the genre uh yeah actually i came into the genre a bit late in my life uh the thing is when you're a fan of animation music is just tied to it i mean even when mary melody started the whole point of animation was to sell music so If you grew up on Disney like I did or just a lot of cartoons, then you were expected to be somewhat familiar with musicals as a whole. If not watching them or being familiar with Broadway, at least when they would reference to old musicals and stuff. So for a while when I was growing up, I loved singing. I loved dancing to music and all that stuff. But I think around the 2000s, I kind of fell out of love with music when I got tired of animation, always having songs when you didn't need it, especially because some of those... Uh, kids' cartoons can get really poor quality. But now, kind of back as I become an adult and loved musicals as a genre themselves, now I'm always open for singing and dancing in whatever form there is. That's true, yeah, and it's, it's appropriate, given that uh, we're doing this musical episode because uh, originally it was supposed to be the theatrical release of uh, Trolls World Tour, but uh, we're in the middle of that great COVID-19 outbreak, which has made theaters obsolete for the time being, at least. Um, but that movie is still going to be released digitally, which is very interesting as a prospect for, you know, modern theatrical distribution, <laughs> just in general. You know, uh, we've done a musical episode before, Adam. Uh, that was our 11th episode. It's been that long <laughs> since we did How could one. I forget from Justin to Kelly? Good of course, Of course, you, you're the biggest Justin Guarini fan of all time. That olive-skinned angel. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. Uh, but Adam, you're famously not a fan of musicals on the show. Yeah, no, not not really. I mean, uh, I don't necessarily loathe. Well, no, I guess that's not true. I do kind of loathe the genre. I understand it. I, I there are some that I get entertainment out of, but for the most part, no, it's not. It's not really my thing. And uh, other than like the animated movies, like the Disney movies and stuff like that. Other than that, I, I'm not a big fan of live action musical. 
Well, it's interesting. I think from when we did that earlier episode on Cabaret, which you ended up liking, and then also our picks for the at least the good pick, uh, it seems you don't mind musicals if they're sort of like diegetic. Like the performers are actually performing them on screen as opposed to like it's a weird meta thing about like, oh, hey, the music is kind of translating their feelings that would normally be just spoken out. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I think that's absolutely the case. Because, yeah, with Cabaret and then even with my choice tonight, that that's definitely sort of the deal. And, uh, yeah, I, I tend to prefer that one. I, I'm not like a big, like, like Les Mis. Get the, get the fuck out of here with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, shit like that. I, it just doesn't do it for me. Even, like, West Side Story. I know it's a classic and blah, 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 but I just don't fucking care. I don't care if you just met a girl named Maria or whatever the fuck. Come on. But suddenly that name will never be the same to him, Adam. Uh, just, you know, just, no. <laughs> oh, Maria is a very common name. Uh, I would say even it's just that musicals come in so many different flavors. And there was a very strange but fascinating musical explosion, I would say, during the 2010s. Uh, to the point where it's like people got really into Broadway again with uh, Hamilton and uh, Book of Mormon and all that stuff. And then you had a more public acceptance of musicals after they became like either big Oscar contenders or even just big money makers. Because who would have expected uh, Stars Bore Foreign to be a great movie with the biggest selling soundtrack of the year? I didn't. Well, no, or even, like, A Greatest Showman, which was a famous example of, like, it didn't do that well when it first opened that first weekend. Everything, like, oh, it's just a big bomb. And then it became, like, a massive success thing in, like, early 2018 after it opened in December. It was a very weird thing. Um, I'm a fan of musicals myself. Um, I think it has to do with, like, my sisters were very much into dance when they were younger, and my dad, like, showed us a bunch of, like, the old classic musicals. I don't even mind it when it's, like, somebody expressing their thoughts sort of non-diegetically, because I feel like it's very much a theatrical or anarchy cinematic construct. I think it's just as worthy as, say, like, any big dream sequence that happens in a movie, or even, you know, in, like, a horror movie when things go a bit more supernatural and stuff. I think it's just as valid uh, a technique to express emotion and express, like, thematic stuff than, you know, as much as any of those other things. No, no, no. I, I do believe, of course, there is a validity to it, and you know, it is another form of storytelling and, and movie making and whatever to get your point across. It doesn't do it for me. That's all. It's not that I don't believe that it's a useful tool. I just couldn't. I never got into it ever. It's, Only when it's real people, though. Like I can watch a fucking mermaid or a little vo- voodoo frog say it all day, and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my favorite Disney musical, Voodoo Frog. Yeah, <laughs> it's like with any genre of music. Sometimes you get really into it, and then just after a while, you get too overexposed and get tired of it. Like these days, I love when cartoons like Adventures Time or Steven Universe or any of those kind of things talk about songs because they're they're a bit more emotive and about feeling. Versus the if I have to hear little kids sing about friendship for the tenth goddamn time. No, yeah, a lot of like especially sort of the. 90s movies that were attempting to like rub off on the success of the Disney Renaissance did a lot of that. We kind of talked about one when you were on like way early in the show with uh, Rocket Doodle. Way early. Way early. <laughs> TBT to Rocket Doodle. Uh, but anyway, anyway, we're not talking about Rocket Doodle again. Anyway, we're talking about two very different films. Uh, we are talking about uh, two films that we kind of discussed this uh, in the pre-show. A very fitting double feature on a lot of levels for musicals, uh, where we're talking about uh, Phantom of the Paradise, which was Adam's good pick 
from last week, and The Apple, which was my bad pick from last week. And if you're new, basically, uh, we picked these at the end of our last episode, where Adam had two good movies, I had two bad movies, and uh, we picked them between 1 and 10, and that got us closer to whichever good or bad pick we ended up getting, in this case, Fan of the Paradise and The Apple. And we'll be doing that again at the end of the episode for next week, so stay tuned for that. But first, let's get into our good feature, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. The story of a sound, the man who created it, the girl who sang it, the monster who stole it, and the phantom who haunts the paradise. Phantom of the Paradise. There really is a Phantom. So, uh, Phantom of the Paradise came out Halloween 1974, October 31st, 1974. Uh, written and directed by Brian De Palma. Our first De Palma film on the show, which is interesting, because uh, this doesn't really match most of his other movies in a lot of levels, um, except there's plenty of Hitchcock homages, one very direct parody included. Um, and, you know, despite what you, we kind of mentioned earlier, Adam, about you not being a fan of musicals, this was your good pick, which is the main reason we decided to revisit the topic, just to see what you would consider a good musical, and, uh, what makes this sort of stand out to you as a good version of a genre you usually don't like? Uh, well, A, the, I mean, as a kid, the, the design of the, the Phantom character alone always stuck with me. I think it's such a cool design. And that poor bastard just goes through the fucking ringer. It's campy. It's you know, it's funny. Maybe not intentionally sometimes, but it's it's got a real dark sense of humor behind it. Uh, I absolutely love Swan. He's such a slime ball. It's just it's just a cool little movie, man. It's Family Opera meets Faust meets Hitchcock, and it's it's just pretty fucking cool. I've always liked the the look of it, the aesthetics of it, and uh, you know the songs are tolerable as compared to our other feature. Uh, but the songs are, aren't too bad in this. And, uh, you know, it, it's just, and it's got Jessica Harper in it, and I've always been a huge fan of hers. This is, to me, one of the better examples of not only a musical, but even a genre mashup type movie, uh, be it a horror musical. Uh, so, yeah, it's just kind of always had a little special place, and I'm a De Palma fan. That's very interesting, yeah, especially given, I know we've talked off mic that even in terms of actual stage musicals, you're also a fan of the Andrew Lloyd Webber fan of the opera. Not sort of the film version. But the actual music. I, I, I actually don't hate the film version either. I don't think it's great. Oh. Gerard, but- Gerard Butler can't hold a fucking tune at all. But, you know, I, I don't think it's that bad. Aesthetically, I like the way it looks a lot. I think it's very competently shot. Uh, and Emmy Rossum can sing. Uh, no, yeah, I absolutely do like the uh, stage musical. I think I've seen it three times now, maybe four. Yeah, I was always a fan of that. And it's probably because it's more horror-tinged and sort of dark and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I'm a fan. I actually saw Phantom on stage, and we were, like, at the right seats to where in, like, the, the mid-act break thing, where the chandelier falls, we were, like, right underneath the chandelier. Nice. Pretty dope, y'all. Dope-ass seats for the Phantom, bro. I'll drink for that, bro. <laughs> but I'm very curious about Scott, because, uh, Scott, when we tasked you to watch uh, both our movies, uh, I know you were a fan of, or at least had seen, the other film we're going to talk about, uh, but you had said you hadn't seen Phantom of the Paradise before, so uh, upon viewing it for the first time, what do you think of it? So I had not been that familiar with Brian De Palma's work, uh, and of course I know Paul Williams. Everyone knows, I think, Paul Williams due, due to some form or another. For a lot of people, it was The Muppets. For me, it was like Dexter's Laboratory. Right. Uh, so I was really curious to see it because of its cult following and its style and its aesthetic, and 
this musical isn't just good. I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. It, it really shows what happens when you have someone like Paul Williams, who is such a dynamo in so many places, like just singing, writing, even his kind of clever acting, like the way he he plays the role of Swan. Yeah, I really love how De Palma here explores the musical as a whole, because you see the, the growth and the decline of all these characters involved and just the way its frame makes it feel more than just the average musical. I really, really think this was a great surprise for me. Yeah, I've been a fan of this one as well. I'd seen it, um, I remember, because uh, this is a film, um, is one that's like very influential to a lot of sort of the filmmakers I really loved, especially Edgar Wright and Guillermo del Toro. Um, both cited as really big influences on their careers um, and a lot of the stuff they've done since. And I'd heard them talk for so long about, like, oh, what well, your influences? They always mentioned Family of the Paradise. And I was like, oh, I need to see this movie, which I eventually did, like, in high school or so. Um, and I really ducked at that time. And since I haven't seen, like, a huge amount of De Palma's work, um, but from what I have seen, I really like a lot of this earlier sort of, like, 70s era period especially um, because I'd seen, like, this. I recently saw Sisters, uh, the Margot Kidder twins movie, which is pretty dope. Um, and my favorites of his are Blowout and Carrie. Obviously, I love both those movies. Um, but I agree that, like, the what's so fascinating about this is it has so many different sort of influences that are all around, and it feels very much like sort of a time capsule movie. Like, we talk about movies that sometimes feel dated, and this one definitely feels a firmly 1974, but in a way, in this case, where it feels like you are stepping into that particular time period, because it's commenting on so much stuff like the music industry, and we're at that midway point between disco and the hippie movement and stuff like that. There's a lot of sort of, like, weird influences that kind of merge into this um with even like you mentioned brian de palma's direction i love this movie looks like a classic 70s like comic book in terms of the framing and even especially on the blu-ray that i have the actual like sort of restoration really pops out all the colors in a way that feels like this is so uniquely put together in a way that feels like oh i'm opening up like some 70s specific era of like a, a jack kirby comic in particular Oh yeah, absolutely. And even like with the design of the helmet and everything, it's very comic booky. I watched an HD version of it, and uh, yeah, absolutely, it looks it looks fantastic. It still really holds up. It's still firmly planted in the era it was made, not only because of the music, but because of the way it's shot as well. Like it's it shot great, but it, it's you could tell it's a movie from the seventies, uh, from the way it's filmed, and maybe even just the some of the techniques or the film quality. Like, uh, there's no way you could show this movie, like, even if it was completely cleaned up and fool someone into thinking it was from even 85. You know, this movie is firmly a 70s movie. Adam, I'm glad you brought up the sound because I think that's something that really makes it distinct. I know a lot of people who aren't into Broadway or musicals because the songs are too big, they're too overbearing, they're too, like, simple about, like, I'm feeling this way. And I love that the music here not only feels appropriate to the time because you have the opening song from the Juicy Fruits who kind of are doing a 50s throwback, and there's some stuff in there that sounds like Elton John or Meatloaf. This would be a very good introductory musical to people who say, I don't like musicals very much. Because I think so much of what makes this movie work is that because it's all about the music industry and focusing on the big themes of like love and desire and tragedy, it all perfectly entwines together in this perfect little repackaging of story in a very like gruesome and funny and fascinating way. No, oh, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. You, you definitely feel um, so many of like the influences from like really old horror movies and stuff. Like obviously the Phantom of the Opera element of it. There's there's so many like nods and winks to as far back as like the Universal era Lon Chaney 
uh, Phantom of the Opera that are in there. Um, but even some of like the the seventies sort of music stuff, especially, I think, is a big tribute to we've mentioned him before Paul Williams, who was a songwriter. He also plays Swan or villain in the film, and uh, he was a very famous songwriter, especially around this time. He had written songs for Three Dog Night and Helen Reddy and David Bowie and the Carpenters. Like he freaking wrote we've only just begun and then later would go on to write music for like the muppet movie um and some of these this is the guy who wrote motherfucking rainbow connection but i love the fact that uh this movie very much is commenting on the music industry from the perspective of, like people who clearly are sort of aware especially at this time like the nostalgia wave which was like really hitting especially around in the 70s era this is not too long before or after like happy days and american graffiti where people were nostalgic for the 50s and it starts off with as you mentioned the juicy fruit song um, but what's so interesting is that sort of melody of especially the Faust song that our main character, the William Finley character plays, uh, becomes so mutated over the course of the entire film that it's like the same basic like song beats are all there in like all the very different permutations, um, but it shows sort of like the warped artistic integrity from the record industry of just, like, taking a great artist's work and completely mangling it for, like, pop hit status. Yet, at the same time, the songs are pretty dope, so you're kind of conflicted the whole time. <laughs> the songs are truly great. I mean, Paul Williams, in, in all of his talents, is most regard for being a songwriter, and I appreciate that all of these songs, from the more poppy ones, the more somber ones, are all connecting to these themes, like the Faust song is like, I would sell my soul just to be loved, and just the greater... Oh, arching themes and it even works to everyone's voices from winslow to phoenix's voice to even the more i guess rock and roll kiss kind of songs from uh the the opening like uh life at last or even the, the later one the somebody special like you where they're literally wearing very similar makeup to oh, kiss yeah. um to the point where this like came out right around the time kiss started becoming like a thing so it's a bit of like what came first chicken or the egg kind of thing um in mm -hmm. any case uh, i would like at least side with wh whoever came first i would side with this movie more because this is good <laughs> hot take hey i can look more fondly back on this than kiss <laughs> it's true. But... uh but uh you agree with all that adam i mean yeah, I don't want to kiss. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, uh, kiss got a couple good jams. They, they, Gene Simmons sucks, but no, I, I definitely agree. Uh, you know, and I just want to say that Beef might be my favorite rock star name ever. That yes. his name is just Beef. I yes. absolutely love that. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I'm like this fucking guy. No, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think this. You know, this movie has it all going for it. It's full of hokiness, but still it's very sincere, almost slapsticky sort of comedy, especially with Winslow before he becomes the Phantom. Or, you know, like where he slides down the box into the truck. Like, come on. They didn't stop that. But anyways, it's 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 just a fun, fun little movie. I think it's it's got way more going for it than than you probably would expect somebody who hasn't seen it. Like if you describe this movie to someone like, what the fuck? Like, they're going to think you're a moron for, for recommending it. But I, I, I think it's definitely one like Scott said, if you've maybe not given musicals a fair shake and you maybe want to get into it or see a different type, then this, this is probably a good introductory sort of film for that. Yeah. I guess we should also basically, we haven't done much of a plot synopsis if you're unaware of this movie, but it's, it's very much the Faust story where you have Winslow leeches our lead played by William Finley, who was in like most of Brian De Palma's movies of this time. Like he's pretty much from like his very early start in career 
all the way through, like, the very early 80s. He was in, like, every single Brian De Palma movie. And he plays this, like, master sort of uh, songwriter who's composing a cantata, and he's playing at this club after the Juicy Fruits play at this club, and are just, like, adored by everybody. No one pays attention to Winslow playing his Faust song, but it's noticed by Swan, who's the Paul Williams character, who's a record executive, who's like, I really want to, like, pick up this guy and have him, you know, for my own little collection of different songwriters and stuff. And Winslow initially refuses, but then a bunch of machinations happen, they get Winslow thrown in jail, and he tries to escape, and then he becomes horribly massacred um, in terms of his face as he's trying to escape, and then he ends up at the theater where Swan performs everything called The Paradise, where he ends up becoming a sort of phantom character that haunts The Paradise, and Swan ends up getting, catching wind of him and saying, hey, why don't you go ahead and uh, you know compose songs for me, especially since you, have, since you have this thing for Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper, who's this singer that he knows during like auditions or like he tried to sneak into. This ends up creating sort of like a big Faustian deal in which uh, Winslow signs over his soul um, and writes songs at the same time, and... Uh, yeah, it's it's a very Faustian epic of sorts, and I think one of the better ones, especially when it's played in this more comedic context, with some of the other characters that pop up in here, like, I totally agree about Beef, as played by Gary Graham, is such a fun character. It's a bit of like, obviously, like he's playing a printing sort of gay stereotype to some extent, but at the same time, he's so funny. And more of the humor comes from him being kind of like an asshole <laughs> and a pompous dick than him necessarily being kind of fey. Uh, but at the same time, he has such great delivery, like, especially the bit where the Phantom's doing something and it's a horrible noise, a scream, and he's just like, what is that? So good. <laughs> this I, building is cursed. <laughs> and, and the way they play on the, the music industry as it goes along in all these little ways, like some are more obvious, like uh, Swan basically constantly drags women along to perform for him that oh you'll become a member of the paradise but he he kind of just wants a big harem and then there's other things going along like when uh beef is hired because it's like well we can just keep him drugged up and going along in fact there's a scene where uh the phantom after playing music for so long wakes up and swan just arrives with a briefcase full of pills like phantom breakfast well my favorite example of that is when he's sort of uh auditioning and we get end up introducing beef into the movie and he's sitting on like a desk that looks like a giant gold record and he's going around hearing people do various different versions of the sort of faust song um and it's like a country music singer and like a you know 70s sort of supremes girl group uh this like and then we eventually get all the way to beef doing his rock version of it that's such a great example of how like these especially like this guy's clearly based on like a phil specter um, you know, in that they're both record executives and they're both monsters. Um, and he just ends up like auditioning all these different people and just shows how much he's willing to mangle this great music just for his own personal devilish interests. And mangle it. I mean, he completely changes it. I do love when, you know, Winslow breaks into swanage, as they call it. And there's just countless line of girls singing his song and he really doesn't even kind of understand that it's his song until he gets to phoenix because she sings it perfectly swan is just butchering his music yeah transformation is really fascinating as you watch this movie because when you first meet uh willem finley when i looked at him it's like he kind of looks like paul williams like i see why it's like they get paul williams to do his all his singing roles and then he slowly transforms like when he gets put into prison they do something to harm him and then uh, when he gets, he tries to go back to get revenge. He gets mangled even more, and how he transforms into the fandom with the iconic mask, and the way he has this like torn, raspy voice through this voc- vocoder. They basically use it so he can p- continue to perform and write music, but this time through Swan's 
machines and machinations and then to sound like him so he can continue to ride off his success. It's really great storytelling, like not just with all the major conceits, but just the slow, twisted, just how you watch this one guy just get totally twisted and mangled by the system and Swan is just coldly just taking advantage of it all as he just reaps in all the attention and success. William Finley looks like Paul Williams in the way if you like stretched Paul Williams, like really stretched him to be like, I don't know, five foot 10 as opposed to four foot six or whatever. This is the movie where I realized like, oh man, that guy's really short. I did not know he was like that small. He's a teeny little guy. Teeny little Uh, man. No, it'd be like if Donald Sutherland and Williams had a baby. (laughs) (laughs) And they gave him Coke bottle rimmed glasses. Yep. Yep. That's him. That's Winslow. Uh, But at the same time, what I also like is the fact that like, even with Winslow from the beginning, like you kind of see the earlier versions, like he's not just a complete innocent. He's very much like he's a gifted artist who has like all this great stuff. But even early on when uh, Paul Williams sends over his right hand man to like, hey, try and recruit him. He already has a temper. He already has an ego. There's all this stuff already about him that makes him establish early on about like, okay, this guy could become the Phantom either way after a certain point. Like, it would just accentuate all these other traits about him. And I so agree about like the production design and the costume design of especially the Phantom character and just the image of the Phantom at that weird sort of like organ where he's performing all these songs with like that bird hat and the thin leather uh, you know, outfit that he's got at the same time. It's just, it's such a great image. I can see why this would inspire, especially like an Edgar Wright or um, mm-hmm. a Guillermo del Toro. Like we talked about Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Like there's so much of like, particularly the Swan character and like Jason Schwartzman's character in that movie. Oh yeah, he's, absolutely. Like, so much of that there, yeah. One of the biggest inspirations who Paul Williams ended up working with was uh, Daft Punk. Uh, Daft Punk, uh, their album uh, Random Access Memories features Paul Williams on it. And I can very much see just the way the voice sounds and it, it's, vocoded and and transformed to be that very strange electronic thing you can totally see the inspiration that this movie had on them yeah on the track um touch in particular there's that point where it goes like touch i remember touch it sounds exactly like that vocoder and i do just like the touch of like him actually manipulating it and stuff for a bit and then he hears his own paul williams voice coming out and he's like that's perfect just to really draw the ego out even more (laughs) I'll tell you, man, Winslow's got one big-ass eye, though, don't he? Oh, yeah. He does so much with just, like, you can only really pierce that eye, and then also the decision to give him, like, these silver teeth he has to get replaced in prison and the black lipstick Mm -hmm. is phenomenal. Just that look. It's all so simple, but it's so perfect for, like, a Phantom-style character. Because obviously you're dealing with, like, oh, the Phantom of the Opera with, like, the, you know, half-mask and all this other stuff. How do you reinvent that, especially for the 70s? It's like, oh, give him, like, a weird superhero Birdman look. I love the mask, though. It's so cool. Very iconic. I can see why this... And not to undersell, like, just the music or the the theatricality of it all, but also credit to De Palma, just not only the way he frames things and kind of, like, knows how to do wide shots and kind of come in, but I love the way he shoots, like, action scenes here. Like, when Winslow initially escapes from the prison, the way it's, like, this foot shapes as he just goes to uh, Death Records and he just kind of just totally gets them off the system. Or my one of my favorite shots is uh, during the climax. Phoenix and Swan are going to do this live air thing, 
and the Phantom knows he he wants to stop it, so they just have the camera right behind him as he's just barreling through the hallway. Yeah, you can tell the influences of, like, De Palma, shocker, he, he has a thing for Hitchcock movies, I don't know if you could tell from the Psycho parody in here, or the some of the split-screen stuff and these other things, um, but you can, I think this is an example where, like, you can tell those influences, but they don't feel like straight-out ripping off as it is in some of his later movies, as much as here it feels very much like homage put into his own context, like, the one of my favorite bits is the whole um beach boys parody they do with the uh the, the new version of the juicy fruits uh carburetors man that's what life's all about um but they do the split screen thing and half of it is like the touch of evil thing where he puts the bomb inside of the car and it goes along and you're just waiting for it to blow up and the other half is like all the bickering that goes on backstage of just all these like different prima donnas that are actually on set and how they're so concerned with such trivial things before everything explodes right in front of him and how even like anytime any of these horrible events happen swan just has this look on his face of not like oh everything's ruined or oh my god people have hurt me he's like ah fuck now i gotta like fix everything (laughs) like it's just like an annoyance to him feels like he's always got a backup plan though like he's always got another sort of angle to play no matter what happens like he's always going to have it figured out and and just continue on he's not stopping for anything i love the way he's such this very thoughtful kind of like insidious type of villain because there's the scene where uh the phantom is crying because swan is with phoenix and then it cuts later to hit them on the roof and and he's like what are you going to do now you think that can work Oh, no, especially the bit where uh, the Phantom's, like, on the the roof. Phoenix is necking uh, Swan, and he's just, like, looking up as this is happening at the Phantom. He's like, yeah, this is happening right now. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> 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 I love that so much. Uh, but also, we should un- we should undersell as well Jessica Harper, who you mentioned, Adam. You might recognize from films like Suspiria. Uh, you know, we talked about her previously on Shock Treatment, another musical that you loved. Adam in particular. Oh, yeah. Greatest movie ever made. But this is her film debut, actually. And uh, she is, like, a weird, interesting talent that I wish kind of did more movies, especially after the 70s into the 80s. Because uh, she kind of disappeared, especially, like, mid-80s. She kind of, like, stopped making movies, really. And I think she's so phenomenal here, especially she has this weird combination. She has this very youthful, almost, like, childlike, cherubic face. But she has this very husky, beautiful voice when she plays, like, the songs Old Souls or Special to Me. Um, that song as well. She has this weird kind of husky voice that's very interesting, this weird contrast that says that she's been through and had an interesting life, but also she can't be an innocent at the same time. That works perfectly for this movie. She's almost kind of caught in between two worlds, between the uh, swan you know, seductiveness and the innocence of a Winslow. Especially when they show other uh, women trying to audition, they're trying to do very balkier loud, like, oh, the fast! And she just comes in with a more just drier kind of like more soulful type of singing that really charms winslow and you can kind of see how this follows through it would have been very interesting if they went if De Palma went with his original choice was trying to get linda ronstadt to be this role yeah he tried to get a lot of different people like he wanted to get an actual band for the the juicy fruits the, the various different permutations of that band uh like in the and the beach bums um and then uh later on the undead um he was trying to get like alice cooper or the rolling stones even shana nah for especially the opening bit which you don't know shana that's too on the nose i think quite frankly and i like the fact that they kind of got these interesting comedic actors like particularly the main one in the juicy fruits part like the guy who sort of opens the song and sings like all the big stuff uh, a guy named archie han who has been in like several uh different smaller comedy things he was gonna be on saturday night live but he got booted 
right before the first cast. He was about to be, like, one of the not-ready-for-prime-time players. And that dude is so funny in that opening bit. Like, when he's improvising stuff, apparently, about, like, him injecting a needle for, like, the whole suicide thing in the opening number, and him, like, convulsing on the stage. It's so good. Love it. Love it. Love it. I love that he's just got a weird, like, can't-place-it European accent, too. Where the fuck is this guy from? <laughs> Middle Mary Louise. It's like, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like any different accent, necessarily. Uh, but what's everybody's favorite song? Adam, what's your favorite song in the movie? Probably, and you, you'll you'll have to forgive me, I don't really know the names of the songs that much. The one that's sang by uh, either Fake Ass or Original Kiss. Oh, yeah, uh, Something Super Like You, yes. Yeah, yeah, um, that's my favorite one. That's quite good. Yeah, and I also love the whole factor of that sequence. Like, it, the backdrop is like a Cabinet of Dr. Caligari thing, uh-huh. and that dope thing where, like, he, they're getting, like, body parts out of people in the audience, like the head and the torso and stuff, to construct beef on the slab. Uh, I, I, <laughs> like, I would love to be at that show. That, that's, that's fucking dope. <laughs> Just like, yeah. Uh, but what about you, Scott? What's your favorite sort of song sequence in the movie? That is tough. There's a lot of good songs here. I don't think any of these songs are very weak. Uh, I think they all have various strengths, depending on the mood and the atmosphere. So there's the, the song itself, Faust. Uh, Winslow does a version of it, which he's just kind of singing on the piano, kind of like a nice little tune. But there's a full version of it sung by Swan. And I love that version. That version's a lot more full. It's a bit more moody. But then it just kind of grows and swells with like this great bass and this great overcompanying orchestra to it. Just great music all throughout this. I mean, I would say my favorite sort of song sequence in here is the uh, Life at Last that Beef does, uh, just because of Garrett Graham's fucking dance moves. They're so great. Like the weird chicken buck thing he does. Or, oh, yeah, he's fully committed, dude. Or even the uh, the bit where he gets electrocuted on stage. Um, and that, that also kind of, like, Paul Williams said this as much in interviews I saw on the DVD. Um, he said, oh, this is basically uh, the moment where I really kind of honed into, like, what the idea was going to be when we found out we were doing this for the story, because it changed a lot during production, of, like, Beef is going to perform this song, everyone's going to love it, he's going to die on stage, and people are still going to be, like, going after his corpse being put into the ambulance. Sort of the weird, like, commenting at the time about, like, the uh, Vietnam War sort of violence on TV that became entertainment at that point in particular. You see so much of, like, that bitter satiric note really go throughout the rest of the movie, right up to the whole, like, a live assassination attempt on TV. That's entertainment! Uh, Which I love also. The picture of Dorian Gray influence that's there with um, Swan slowly, like, deteriorating as the tape is, like, destroyed and his weird face and all this other stuff. But I would say my favorite song, though, is actually the end credits song, Hell of It, which is a great fucking song. It's that it was supposed to be like for a big funeral scene for Beef originally that didn't end up getting shot. Uh, but I love that fucking song. It's actually like playful but very angry, bitter song about like a somebody really hating somebody and celebrating their life in this really like backhanded compliment way. I love that song. Uh, well, I, I guess we should kind of get into our uh, final thoughts then on the movie at this point. Uh, why don't you start, Scott, as our guest? Your final thoughts on Phantom of the Paradise. To think that Brian De Palma got this idea from hearing an awful cover of The Beatles' Day in the Life, and he just got motivated to, like, I hate the music, I hate what I've been through, and I'm going to turn that into art. And this is what we got. A match made in hell and heaven with Paul Williams to kind of like design the whole musical landscape and turn it into this genre-fueled, dare I say masterpiece? Well, damn well close. Just a fantastic movie, just up and down. I think that everyone can love from every aspect, just the acting, the direction, the costuming, the set design, and just the way that strings you along with this very like 
enchanting kind of familiar tale, but also a, still truly a tragedy from every form. Just a real wonderful experience. And if you love genre and if you're not sure if you like musicals or not, here's a great starter. I mean, this was not really loved at the time it came out, but it became a cult movie for a reason. And it it really goes to show when you have massive talent at the helm who really can harness that to just wonderful expression. All right, Adam, your final thoughts on Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, I, I pretty much agree with most of what Scott just said. I, I think it's a quite a fantastic movie. Uh, it, it's one that's not necessarily underseen because it does have quite a cult following. For those who haven't seen it, I, I feel it might not get a fair shake. Uh, I think it's sort of just kind of dismissed uh, unfairly. I, I think it's a great genre mashup of a movie. I think it's got a kick-ass soundtrack. I think it's wonderfully acted, wonderfully shot. That, like, I, And I said, I can't say enough about the production design. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I do love the fact that apparently the two places it actually did very well were Paris and Winnipeg specifically <laughs> the, the funny i don't know and in paris that's where the two guys who are daft punk like saw it as teenagers like constantly like they rotated back and forth between like seeing it when it was actually out in theaters in paris i get it having like a sort of european following because some of the sensibilities yeah but in a peg what <laughs> you, 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 you know not too distant from like the french part of canada so you know yeah, well, sure hey you gotta do something in winnipeg Maybe just watch a crazy movie over and over. Oh, they're making syrup and playing (laughs) hockey with bears. That's every part of Canada. Oh, that's true. (laughs) That's all that beloved guest uh, Shaquille does. Shaquille Lambert just does it all the time up in Canada. Uh, But anyway, yes, um, I agree with what you guys are all saying. I love this movie quite a bit. Um, It's like I said, I would say it's my third favorite De Palma movie because I love Blowout. I love Carrie. Uh, But this is right under there, and I think it is sort of the more underrated of, like, the sort of early era of um, De Palma, this particular sort of stretch, when, like, right this would be Carrie, and he would kind of, like, become a bigger filmmaker in a lot of ways. Um, I, but I really dig this one in particular. I think this has, like, so many great songs and character beats and directorial flourishes that I don't see being utilized as well in some of De Palma's later things. Uh, but I, I really dig this one quite a bit. It's a great indictment of the music industry. It's a great Faustian story. It's interesting little um, tragic romance. Um, and it's a good showcase just for Paul Williams, both as an actor and as a songwriter. But we're going to talk about a different movie in just a second. And before we do that, uh, here's Nat for Nia Sosha. You can queue up right after ours. Hey, everyone. This is Carrie the Metal Geek. And I would like to invite you to hang out with myself and my fellow Metal Geeks as we have all kinds of discussions about heavy metal, films and TV shows, video games, theme parks, comic books, and whatever else is tickling our geeks. Please visit our website at MetalGeeksPodcast.com and follow us on all the social medias including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MetalGeeks. We are also proud members of ESO Network, so you can check everything out at ESONetwork.com. Keep it metal, keep it geeky, stay safe, and see you on the next episode. All right, now we're talking about the canon film classic, The Apple. In 1994, the world is controlled by one power. The Apple is success. There ain't no pride! There ain't no shame! There ain't no pleasure! The Apple brings you the experience. Take the Apple! Whoa, 
Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hold on. We'll get to you in a second. Oh. So, so uh, the Apple <laughs> came out November 21st, 1980. Um, it is written and directed by Mohammed um, Golem. I, I apologize. We Menheim. Menheim. Thank you. We had this trouble in our Canon Films episode <laughs> um, in terms of pronouncing it. Yes. Uh, Menheim Golem. Uh, who was one of the two guys who led Canon Films, as we gushed about on that Canon Films episode. But this is uh, one of the ones he actually wrote and directed, um, which was based on a musical uh, by Kobe and Irish Wright uh, that was originally written as a Hebrew stage musical that no one would fund. And then Golan is just like, oh, I love this, that you pitched this to me, it's great. I'm going to rewrite extensively and turn it into this which this is um we kind of as we mentioned uh there's a lot of thematic parallels to uh phantom of the paradise in terms of it looks very much like a sort of 70s era musical of 1980 it's right at the end of the 70s as it were when it was made um and it has you know like faustian stories and even biblical implications but this movie's uh not very well structured to say the least um but one of the first people i heard about it from was actually you scott um, because you were, like, praising the weirdness of this particular movie, um, and I just had to see it, and it's uh, interesting to see, to say the least. Uh, why don't you start a bit with, like, uh, what are your thoughts on The Apple? Okay, I heard about this movie in a very strange way, where I was watching an episode of Kitchen Nightmares, the UK version, and they talked to the owner, who said, I, I did musicals, I went this, in this program called The Apple, which was considered the worst musical of all time, and they show a clip of it singing the titular Apple song, I'm like, they're singing about apples? This this looks crazy. I gotta see it. And when I watched it, I was like, this was insane. It melted my brain. It does so much wild stuff here and down. It's like, it it makes Rocky Horror turn pale. And I just could not stop talking about this movie. I was enthralled by it. And it's such a weird, fascinating project of the time. Uh, Golden Globus, uh, people who behind canon make this, and this is considered to be their biggest project, but also their biggest failure by the way it was critically received and mangled. And watching it again uh, under a more critical eye this time, you can just kind of see that this movie is just sheer incompetence up and down, just in terms of like how it's structured, what it's trying to say, what the characterization is supposed to be. It has those similar themes of like making fun of the music industry and criticizing like how music can kind of like control and take over people with also some wag of the finger about drugs and like how you should maybe look to like the scripture, I suppose. But it is just so wild. Like if there if there is one word to define this movie, it is the word gaudy. Yes, that's a very apt descriptor of a word. Um, you also didn't mention the homophobia, which is there too, which we'll get into <laughs> a bit further. It's very interesting. Uh, but before we get to Adam and just let him off the leash, um, I just yeah, 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 at least a, a brief attempt at a plot synopsis because this one you probably aren't aware of either. Um, the Apple takes place in the far distant future of 1994. In this world, um, it's mainly ruled by uh, the BIM uh, Corporation, which is uh, the Boogaloo industrial music right is the name of the label i believe so yeah yes yes um which is run by mr boogaloo as played by uh vladik shellball um who is a guy who was clearly cast because he looked like satan because he's basically satan in the movie yeah it wasn't it wasn't for his singing and dancing ability I <laughs> what are you talking about he's a regular friend of stare Adam. what do you mean I, I love monster mash <laughs> um and he um basically just like rules the world with an iron fist including this big singing competition 
uh, where his Bim song, which literally goes, hey, 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 Bim's on the way, and that's, like, the whole song for the most part, um, is, like, put out there, and everyone's like, oh, we love it so much, and they're basically indoctrinating into liking it as sort of, like, this weird corporate um, overrule of society. Uh, but then these two pure angel singers come out, uh, Catherine Mary Stewart and George Gilmer, who are lovers and sing this beautiful folk song about uh, just like following the traditional ways of love and people are starting to kind of get into it. And the uh, Mr. Boogaloo character notices this things like they're a threat to us, but I kind of want to take them under my grasp and sign them to an evil contract. And uh, he succeeds in at least getting the BB character, the female of that duo. Um, but Alfie, the male of that duo, distances himself and says, oh, this is all, like, wrong, this isn't gonna work. Um, and that's the best I can do for plot stuff, because after that, this movie goes into fucking weird-ass directions <laughs> that I can't quite <laughs> surmise. Um, so, Adam, you hadn't seen this before, and, uh, I'm sure you were a huge fan, and you loved it, and you have the entire soundtrack on uh, your Spotify playlist, right? Absolutely. The, that fucking Bim song, I'm not kidding, I wanted to blow my goddamn brains out. <laughs> I mean, it's nonstop. Fucking jeez. Whole my flames, flames on the socket of my face. Uh, No, it's well, okay. Let's just put it this way. I wrote down notes for this one because there were certain things I didn't want to forget. So I'm just going to rattle off my notes. And I usually don't take notes. Uh, First, right off the bat, I wrote coming for you. (laughs) (laughs) Holy fuck, dude. Like, my wife and I were watching it. She said it best. A, it's terrible. But I wish, like, we still just made our own ringtones or had a MySpace page because that would be my song on there. <laughs> just because how overtly ridiculous it is. Holy shit. If they're not even trying to hide what they're talking about. I mean, at all. Well, I think it's pretty at subtle, all. Adam. I think they're very subtle. About they're very them. subtle. Yeah, yeah. And then they're doing it. And they're showing a bunch of people doing, like, sex aerobics. In a bunch of different beds, and all the guys look like stepdads. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the people here look like lots of different things. Just because... Yeah, but every single one of them has a mustache. Like you can tell, they're gonna like, you know, hey champ, maybe help me unkink the hose later. You know, just that type of shit. Like, let's go have a catch. <laughs> like it's, it's fucking ridiculous. It's not only very homoerotic, but it's very homophobic at the same time. Oh, extremely like, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's insane. We kind of talked about the Garrett Graham character in *Fam of the Paradise*, and we're just like, oh, he kind of has he has a bit of like a, a gay lisp, as opposed to this movie's literally just like drag queens and anybody who's a vaguely effeminate is working for the devil, and they're trying to <laughs> indoctrinate you into their cult. My very next line is, "The guy with the teeth jewels fucked me up." <laughs> oh, you mean the guy who's supposed to be like the snake from uh, the yeah, Book of Genesis? Yeah, yes, fucking teeth jewels, like. There were bulges everywhere. Yep. Everybody oh, yeah. has a fucking bulge. I mean, oh, it's yeah. like, like, even if you don't want to look at bulges, you have no choice if you watch the Apple. There, it's literally in, like, full fucking screen. All of the cars look like the Homer car from Simpsons. <laughs> That's extremely accurate. <laughs> this was shot in Germany. And when yeah. you realize that, it's like, okay, this is very clearly a German movie. Yeah, but still. I mean, they're all station wagons with giant fins and bubbles. That's the Homer car. Uh, even the fucking strollers had bubbles. Like, what the that fuck? Is is that? <laughs> that is true. That is true. I noticed that. <laughs> Look, uh, it's called cinematic world building, Adam. The world of the Apple so well realized. Because everyone wears giant so fucking shoulder pads. Yeah. And yeah, glitter. Absolutely. And wears stickers on their face. Like hologram stickers. And fucking, no, no, it's, it's, all, it's all the Illuminati. Uh, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. Of course, I didn't read the subtext too well. Uh, <laughs> the coming for you's chick. I mean, she bangs him. Drugs him and bangs him. Basically rapes him. 
And then he must have been so good in his drug state where she's like, I can't handle him. I love him. Yeah, I, I, But you go back to him because he truly loves you. Like, what the fuck is happening here? Well, there's also just the weird uncomfortable factor of like, oh, the downfall of this character is he sleeps with a woman of color, which is really awkward, too. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, but I mean, but what, she, what also becomes, she also becomes disillusioned with Satan because he's so good that it's like, you know, maybe oh, this yeah. drug oh. Satan thing is not for me. And she ends up going to heaven because she appreciates how good she is in bed, which you haven't even gotten to all that shit that happens in Central Park or whatever. He's got, like, the Ark of the Covenant in his pants. It's just, it's fucking insane. And he looks like David Hasselhoff's, like, photo double. But with, like, is he Australian? I don't know. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, and then the Bim song is bad. But I literally started laughing at the child of love. <laughs> child of love. Come to me, child like, oh, of love. Oh, my God. Why has this guy got a solo? What is the fuck happening here who was like yeah, yeah get fucking you know get snuffle up against him here and have him sing a fucking part of this it's it's just the worst which if, if trivia that guy is the villain from bill and ted's bogus journey <laughs> which you would never know because he has the worst old age makeup in the world i mean yeah when he's the old age i would argue once he becomes the weird god character at the like last five minutes of this movie he kind of like oh it's kind of that guy <laughs> with a wig <laughs> like a weird beethoven wig and do they just commit mass suicide is that what happens at the end like, I don't understand. I mean, it's like, like the Haley's oh, yeah. Comet thing. Like, they go up in the Rolls Royce. <laughs> it turns out this movie is a prequel to Left Behind. That's what happens. All the people yeah, that's, who, that's the rapture. Yeah, it, it is the rapture. Yeah, that's the rapture. <laughs> Did they all castrate themselves and catch a ride in Hale-Bop? Or no, well, no, 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 they don't because they say after a year, okay, they, they have a kid now. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm saying, but to go, I mean, in his fucking, like, space trans amp. His holy Rolls Royce. So he comes out, and all I can think of is that fucking regular show where there's at least two times in that show where people from space come down in, like, a fucking car, and it's like... Boom, boom, I could definitely it, tell that the creator of that show watched this at some point on some sort of drug, because you can see oh, a lot of the influence. No oh, and that's the other thing, too. How much fucking cocaine was going around this fucking set? These people... They are so hopped up on God knows what they're like. You want me to do what? Yeah, whatever. Cool. I mean, cocaine implies that that's just the only drug that was going around. I think every single drug possible was consumed in the production of this film. Like, like you think our last movie was about drugs with like bits here and there about pills. But like, BB gets drawn into the world of Bigelow by taking pills. And then, then gets to sing a song all about pills by the song Speed. And then it just keeps going <laughs> along with like, okay, you wake up, you have a pill, you put it on your bin mark, you go home, take some more pills, then sing and dance and have an orgy, then take more pills and go to bed. <laughs> it's a full day. Yeah, well, the one song is about speed, for God's sakes. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, right. Couldn't yeah, tell it all. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, they, don't, they don't say it enough. I mean, huh, what the, who the fuck? This movie was literally made for no one, except for the fucking guy who directed it. It, it, It's a shit show of epic proportions, but yet it's such a shit show car crash that I couldn't stop watching it, man. Right, right. (laughs) Um, What the fuck are they even trying to do here? My wife's literally in the other room, like, doing, you know, just hanging out by herself and taking a minute. And she hears the opening song, and I'm going, oh, oh, like audibly loud. 
what, do you want to watch that here? I'm like, no, because I'm not moving. And then, like, literally within five minutes, she came out. She's like, I got to see what the fuck this is. And she sat and watched this whole thing with me. And when it was over, she clapped. <laughs> I'm like, this is the worst fucking shit. I, I was literally, I shut the TV off and sat in silence for, like, ten minutes. You had to contemplate it. <laughs> I had to just decompress. I'm like, oh, I was so amped up. Just because I, I felt like I took fucking crazy pills. Now I just got to sit quietly and just ponder, what what does this all mean, man? That's why I got so jazzed about seeing this movie and telling you about people. It's, it's like, there's a bad movie. And you always know like, when a movie is bad and you're uncomfortable because it's boring and you just feel it was soulless. And this had like a purpose with Manheim Golan and just the people involved. He wanted to tell this crazy Genesis 1984 story. And by God, he did oh, it. And do they not? constantly remind you that it's 1994 <laughs> that the movie takes place in 94 oh i mean there's a song where they say it's a 1994 overall all, all the signs say 1994 no it's 94 dude it's not even 84 it's 94 this is supposed to take place because this movie was made in the 80s 1980 it's supposed to take place 14 years in the future right right they got everything so right because this is what kurt cobain did in the 90s right <laughs> this is dead on accurate we were literally playing we were playing music in 1994 from the 70s because it's disco music too. Like, yes. I mean, they, they, oh god, oh god, I'm getting a headache again. And dude, it's it's cool to grab your landlord's tits whenever you want. It's so funny and comical. He better be careful with her. Twenty years later, she'd kick Arnold Schwarzenegger's ass in end of days. That's true. It's 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 Miriam Margulies, or she could turn him into a plant because she was Mrs. Sprout in the Harry Potter films. Yeah, whatever. So. <laughs> what's so interesting is like you mentioned sort of like uh, Golan was trying to make this movie it's so weird considering the production of this movie when researching it is so fascinating but like the two people who wrote this the Kobe and Irish Reich were like a husband and wife duo who were sort of trying to make this very sincere musical about these topics uh, in Hebrew as we mentioned they were literally coming over uh, to try and translate it into English which it was and you can tell this was like a copy of a copy in terms of like it's like Google Translate wrote this movie basically in terms of like everything kind of sounds like sentences but not really or like the first 20 or so minutes of this movie I'm just confused the first time I saw it and then the song that really hooked me was the titular Apple song which is all done in this hell set it just looks like hell and there are demons like people with two faces and all this other weird shit and there's a point where somebody starts singing about uh, the dandy character who looks like roger daltrey like exactly like roger daltrey yeah yeah yeah. Very, very it's very it's very just uh like alarming i don't like it and he sings at one point about meeting an actual actual vampire and a vampire pops up for some reason. And there's a dude with two faces. Yeah. And then it's like he's wearing first of all, he's got he doesn't even have a, like a good body. He's got like a like a weird little like belly on him and stuff, but he's wearing a thong. And they show his ass a lot, and he's literally it's like no ass either. It's like shoulders to knees. Shoulders to the back of his knees is just a flat line. But he's like, check out my butt. Uh, you were made for me. And you're like, who the fuck? This is just, oh man! <laughs> and you know, this is like one of many great examples, as we've talked about like recently in terms of the show of like we talk about a bad movie, and you're like Adam Thomas. This sounds like a fever dream you had. It was, but it was also a movie that they made. <laughs> That's the this thing. Is, yeah, this is very real. <laughs> yes, we want BB to come forward. Well, I'm her husband with this horrible fake beard. It's been a year, but they have a fucking two year old. 
Like, that, there's no way that kid is only three months old. Like, that kid is a, a grown-ass kid. It's like he's carrying around Home Alone era Macaulay Culkin in a fucking baby Bjorn. This is my baby. Like, <laughs> this is my infant toddler. It's just my infant son. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, I get a pack of smokes. Or, um, uh, or something. Well, what, the thing is, like, we even talked about the fact that, like, the sort of salvation they have away from this horrible world of drugs and gay people and all this other shit that is apparently so awful um, is this hippie commune that lives in, like, Central Park. They just live there. And in the cops cave. Are, like, and in a cave. cave. <laughs> and they're led by God there. Uh, basically, they're just led over. Just like, here, we must all sit and love here. And, like... It's a movie where constantly, like, uh, one of the other places I heard about this was a podcast called The Flophouse, uh, which is a podcast uh, hosted by a couple uh, former Daily Show writers, great podcast. Uh, someone described it so well on that show when they talked about this movie as, you'll feel like constantly you're saying, hey, am I missing something about this? But no, the movie just didn't explain it to you. Like, constantly. Like, you can tell this is, like, um, about 90 minutes long and they clearly cut so much. They clearly cut so much shit to explain any of these weird things that happen. Scott, can you make sense of any of it? <laughs> I, when you get the Book of Genesis idea and all this other, like, clearly, like, 1984 Orwell stuff, it's like, okay, I can kind of see this going along because uh, you have, like, the devil there and God, and they talk about the apple and, like, what the apple's supposed to represent if you see them as Adam and Eve. It's like you can kind of follow this along as, like, some original sin thing, but it's just, like, it's so random at times like when you have the side stories like when it's not doing any music stuff which this movie is a lot of music and we haven't even talked about it but when it has like the subplot of like alfie is all sad because he doesn't have phoebe and he has this landlord and then he gets beat up trying to do music that they don't like because bim controls all music and then you have the weird like montages of bb going through like the entertainment thing like you have to lose weight you gotta take drugs you gotta practice singing you gotta find people who can sing as well as you and it wants to do all these things, but it's it's just a total hodgepodge. Of like, I'm going to take that and that and just smash them together. And this is the apple. This, this, you will love it yeah. and appreciate it. We've been ragging on this movie a lot, but I do want to kind of look at some other things that I kind of enjoy about this movie. It's like, okay, going to the apple song, the costuming in this movie is bananas. Every character has a costume. It doesn't matter who they are, if they're an extra, if they're a main character. They all have all kinds of suits they all look very strange. They all play different roles. Like the guy who is like has the teeth gold but also plays a snake. And then Boogaloo is also the devil. And then uh, Dandy and Pandy have like these crazy earth, wind, and fire like silver embroidered costumes that they sing with. And everything is like covered in uh, plastic or, or chrome. And it's all so bizarre looking. It's almost like it's almost overwhelming for your eyes. Even in the Apple song scene itself – you see people hanging from nooses, and yet they're dancing. Yep. That's everyone in this movie. Even when, when like, Mr. Boogalow finally gets a song, he's trying to explain things. Everyone looks like a, uh, like a different profession. And then at some point he walks away, and a clown goes out and goes, Mr. Boogalow! <laughs> oh, yeah, and he introduces, like, the incredible shrinking man. Look, as he shrinks, and it's, like, a, a tall guy and behind a pillar, and then it's a, a little, little person. It's, it's For so no weird. reason. No reason For whatsoever. no reason whatsoever. No. <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason to most of this. No, I think that's the thing is, I, I kind of agree with you, and I think it's the reason why, Adam, you were like so transfixed by it, at least, is that it's a movie that is 100% sincere, even though it is fucking off its rocker. Oh, 
they are fully committed to making this like they're they're like this could be the next Rocky Horror Picture Show or this could be the next this. They literally thought they had something here, and you can tell it's all over the screen. I mean, the budget as far as the costumes, all the different like design elements as far as the sets, the cars, the strollers, even every car has giant bubbles on the top of it. I mean, it's, the choreography, even though it's not that good at all, but they choreographed it, and they have hundreds of people doing the same shit. Yes, that's why I was transfixed. I'm like, man, they really went for it. <laughs> like, fuck, they really, really went for it. Right, particularly right from like the the made for me musical number is a great example of that. Where uh, Dandy's trying to transfix BB and like, come and join me. Um, and you have the background dancers who are very committed to basically doing this thing where like the men are leading around the women in a tango, but where the women are like stiff as corpses. <laughs> like for some reason, <laughs> like the choreography is maddening in terms of, like, who thought this was a good idea. Um, and those people, by the way, are the people that would later bring us uh, So You Think You Can Dance, and uh, they would also, like, produce American Idol and all those, like, singing reality shows, which is really interesting considering the whole opening of this movie is literally, like, a singing reality competition. It's weirdly, like, a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> yeah. Also, I found out the budget for this movie was $10 million, which is way higher than our last movie. And yeah. <laughs> you, can, you just kind of see... Like, worlds apart of, like, what you have when you make a movie that is made competently, and then a movie that's just kind of made off the seed but its pants with too many of these big ideas. And Golan, I, I haven't really seen a lot of Golan himself, his movies directly, but the direction in this is almost just, like, non-existent. Just, like, I have all these set pieces. I'm going to let them go. And you just kind of go from there just watching them. Like, the Bim song is its own thing. Or the Apple song is its own thing. Uh what do you guys think about the music? Do y'all have like any songs you like? Because I do kind of enjoy some of these songs. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say of them, honestly, the uh, the the one we were talking about where BB sings out the speed song feels at least the most like okay, this could have been a song that would have been put out and wouldn't have made the top 40, but would have been, like, an obscure pop hit that I could have seen, like, well, this is interesting. Otherwise, yeah, the the other song sequences are mostly fascinating because of just, like, what's going on, not necessarily because of the songs themselves. Uh, but w- what are the ones that you like, Scott, in particular? I'm very fascinated to hear. Okay, so I won't lie that but sometimes, if I'm just, like, doing something, sometimes my head will crawl and go, hey, 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 Bim's on the way. Oh, because it's an earworm. It's a total earworm, that particular song. Yeah. It's an earworm, but the lyrics are crazy too. Like there ain't no good, there ain't no bad, there ain't no sympathy, there ain't no tears, or <laughs> or the apple. <laughs> the apple has as lines like you'll be hypnotized and you'll be demonized, but you'll be victimized. And it sounds like a fucking seven year old wrote these lyrics. A seven year old. Well, that that's the crazy thing. It's like okay, you have this music, and then who had to transform this music? And and I was looking up, like, the composer to this movie was a guy called George Clinton, which is not the Parliament Funkadelic George Clinton. This is actually called uh, George S. Clinton, who most of us would know for doing the music to Mortal Kombat. Right, or the Austin Powers movies as well. He, like, composed all the music for those. And you can kind of see, like, those movies have, like, jingles to them that you can kind of think of. And I think some of these songs, like, the Speed song, I think, is the best song. You just hear kind of hear, like, these swelling choruses from time to time. Or, like, the people who can sing can kind of go along with it with the exception of, like, Mr. Boogaloo. And then they just get so, like, weird and bawdy. And oh, it's, it's always so over the top. 
with this with this film just when they're singing about sex or they're beating people up or it's like okay everyone it's time for the bim hour you guys start dancing the bim and people like will stop like t- putting out fires from houses or they'll stop doing surgery just so they can sing and dance and do the bim yep it's the dystopian future we all thought would happen uh spoilers didn't quite turn out that way but this might have been better <laughs> what's happening right now I mean, this could have been better hey at least i'd be outside dancing <laughs> That's yeah, true. That's true. <laughs> We'd probably be doing that. We'd be exercising so much we wouldn't be able to catch the coronavirus whatsoever. To be too fast for it. But anyway, um, we we could talk about so much more of this movie. But let's go ahead and go into final thoughts. So, uh, Scott, our guest, your final thoughts on the Apple. Okay, if you've heard us talk about this and you've seen how Adam reacts to this movie, do you want to see something that you just truly have not experienced in terms of like a bad movie or even a bad musical in a way that just kind of hooks you with how wild it was created. You might really, really love this. I kind of love this in a very ironic kind of way, but there's a lot I do appreciate in its pure bug nuts insanity. This is such a weird story to tell about its time. And it's even kind of a great double feature to do with our previous movie because they're very similar in lots of ways but this is so much this is just so a blueprint of how not to make a movie uh and why some people feel so weird about musicals because you just have drugs and strange ideas about really simple subjects that just go out of proportion so yeah see it if you want it's on amazon prime get intoxicated if you're of age Go nuts. Fame of the Paradise is the midnight movie, and then uh, the Apple is the 2 a.m. You're really tired from the midnight movie, but you're going to stay awake because you're going to watch the Apple movie. They pair perfectly together in that weird way. But uh, Adam, your final thoughts on the Apple. Let's put it this way. If there was a musician who became a meth head, murdered somebody, went to prison, found religion, got out, got back on meth, and then wrote a musical, that would be this. This movie's terrible. It's, it's it's fascinatingly terrible, though. I mean, I will give it that. You, you're watching, go ahead. I just don't understand. I don't understand this. Like this made me, this movie made me question everything about my life, about my sexuality, about religion, Apple. about, about apples. apples. Yeah, about <laughs> apples. Everything. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's fucking bananas, dude. It, it's off the wall crazy and not in a good way across the board it it is a beautiful car wreck disaster where a family heading home from disney world was horribly mangled this is just fucking nuts it is nuts it's one of the most enjoyable bad movies we've talked about on the show for sure like this goes right up there with like miami connection and samurai cop (laughs) as far as like what the fuck is this Very true, very true. <laughs> but at least those movies, you kind of watch them, you're like, okay, these are low-budget movies, it makes sense that, like, they would, like, come out this way because they clearly don't have much to work with, as opposed to, this is a movie that, as Scott mentioned, cost $10 million, because it was originally $4 million, and apparently Golan would pop off to Germany and then get more money, he'd just have more millions and millions of dollars. That was the, like, behind-the-scenes story that made the most sense. That was where everything just clicked for me, of just like, oh, okay, this is a movie made by people who have so much money to burn, and they can do whatever the fuck they want, and they have a dedication to this particular vision. And that vision is um, insane and wild, and can't really be described that well on a podcast, which is why we definitely would recommend, if you have Amazon Prime, or just in any other way you can, you know, legally 
get it, um, watch The Apple, because it's so weird, and there's no other movie quite like The Apple. <laughs> there's nothing else that really compares. But yes, The Apple. Uh, crazy madness um, from canon, as only they could deliver. <laughs> That's the end of our discussion of our two films for this evening. And uh, before we go and do our picking at the end of the episode, which stick around for for next week, uh, we'll do some feedback reading, because every Monday at uh, DEDB Pod, which is our Facebook and Twitter page, we ask you about, like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite films related to whatever topic we're doing? And so for musicals, we asked you all about that. And uh, first up, James Rodriguez says, My favorites are The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Once... Singing in the Rain, Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, The Batchet Extravagance that is uh, The Legend of the Stardust Brothers, um, and then my least favorites are Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights and Olaf's Frozen Adventure. Dan Chambos says uh, Blues Brothers is my favorite. Rachel Hillis says favorites uh, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, Cabaret, Chicago, Phantom of the Opera, Fiddler on the Roof, and Les Mis, to name just a few. As for least favorites, uh, I don't have that many. I do have an intense like-hate relationship with Grease, as in I like many of the songs and I hate everything else about it. Um, Ryan Lindley says And in the Apocalypse was so damn good. And then um, Amanda Leonard says uh, my favorites are Grease Showman, Grease, Phantom of the Opera, Moulin Rouge, Rocky Horror, Singing in the Rain. Least favorites are Rent and Sound of Music. Then uh, Stephen D. at WaitingFTH on Twitter says I'm a sucker for funny face, and High Society is pretty much an annual watch. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of those. I even I just recently watched The Sound of Music because I was on Disney Plus now that they own Fox, and I was like, you know, I watched this a lot when I was a child. I don't know how this would hold up necessarily now. And I think everything before the actual Nazis come into the movie is it's it's very white, but I kind of still can't help but fall for it. I think it's a, a big credit to the kid actors and Julie Andrews, of course, but also your man Adam Christopher Plummer. I think uh, really sells a lot of that movie to me. I, I'm guessing you're not uh, a fan. I, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I, I respect it for what it is. I, I understand it's you know super beloved. It's got a huge fan base, and people absolutely love it. It's just it's not for me. It's a weird thing where, like, honestly, that movie works so much better when there's no conflict. <laughs> like when it's just all of them like singing together. I really love it, and then like the Nazis come in, and the movie weirdly slows down. We're just like, oh man, what happened to the? Bring back the dancing in like drape clothes. <laughs> Right, just, I like, mean, or 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 why make why make the Nazis a bummer? Let's do something different. That well, that's the thing. I'm not I, I'm not really a fan of musicals or movies in general where it's you know family friendly and all of a sudden there's oh here comes the Reich. Well, I mean, I'm especially like, when it's like the movie's been going on for like about two hours at that point, <laughs> and then the Nazis come. <laughs> It's really weird, um, and it's also weirdly based on a true story that involved all of that anyway. Um, but uh, did any of those a, that we wait a minute, wait a minute, the Nazis were real. Gotta sit you down, Adam, and also tell you some things after that time period that are also true about Nazis. But oh no! All right. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, just... uh, did, did any of those tickle your fancy, Adam? Any of those mentioned? Oh yeah, dude! I fucking love Pop Star. I think Pop Star is such an underrated movie. I think it's so funny. It's one of the better mockumentaries to me that exist, at least in modern times. I think it's an absolutely hilarious, hilarious film. Um, and I love Blues Brothers. I mean, it's a classic. You know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, I, I really do like. I'm not, like, crazy over it, but I like it for what it is. Uh, and, you know, that, it's, I mean, that's probably where... Uh, Probably, that's probably it for me. <laughs> and are there any other musicals that you might like to state on the record? Uh, nope. What about animated ones? Oh, for a while, if we're going animated, I don't know, all of Disney? Uh, <laughs> at least pre, like, Princess of, well, Princess of Frogs, actually. Princess of the Frog is great. Yeah, Princess of Frog is pretty good. 
a lot of animated movies. Like the first Shrek is still good, even though it's not really a musical. Just has Smash Mouth in it, which that makes everything better. <laughs> they did make a musical version, Adam, that you can watch. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, shit, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> like I said, I don't really follow it too much, so none really spring to mind. Like the ones I've seen, like I, I remember seeing Newsies in school, and I'm like, why the fuck are these kids so happy? <laughs> it's just, it just never been for me, man. I recently watched that actually as well on Disney Plus, and I because I'd heard so much about it. And watching it, I'm just like, this really should have been a stage musical first. And everything I heard about the stage musical version of it is just like, oh, it improves completely on the movie <laughs> in every single level, which I'm sure it does. And that's also available on Disney Plus is like the stage version of that. Um, but uh, Scott, uh, did any of those tickle your fancy or any other ones you want to mention? I'm 100% with Adam. I love pop star i think that's probably the most underrated one of the last decade i went to a uh, sing-along screening of it not too long ago had a great time fantastic stuff uh also blues brothers was one of my big favorite movies to kind of turn me around on the genre because i i really started liking musicals exploring them from like the 1970s onward because i think if you go older than that then they feel kind of same about like oh they're about relationships or weird marriages or really big big over-the-top stuff, and they all just felt too similar. And, and when you get to, like, that or Cabaret or um, Fiddler on the Roof, I really like that stuff. Um, I'm not super, super into some of the ones here. Like, I'm not that much into Anna the Apocalypse. I'm not – I love the, the first two-thirds of Rocky Horror, but I don't like the last third. Um, I'm, I'm actually really happy that James uh, said once because that's directed by – uh, John Carney, and he directed my favorite uh, musical of last decade, which is the movie Sing Street, which mm-hmm. I think everyone should watch. Very good movie. Yes. Um, of course, there's been a very good high pitch of lots of Disney stuff recently, which I would say the best animated musical from last decade was Coco. I don't think anyone will argue with me on that. I'm definitely in the camp that loves La La Land. I think it counts as a musical. I think it's great. Uh, the second half really makes it shine. Uh, one person mentioned Greatest Showman, which is Probably one I say is good, but I feel the most guilty about in the way that I like the songs. I kind of hate what the movie's about. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, like, warping a true story, just like, hey, P.T. Barnum, great dude. Totally not awful. <laughs> this, this granddaddy of exploitation, secretly really woke. Not not the greatest idea there, guys. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I've really gotten into a lot of musicals lately, and I don't plan to stop anytime soon, especially with kind of exploring the, the last two we covered. Uh, and also, just to give a little uh, rip to someone, I recently just watched That Thing You Do, uh, Tom Hanks' first movie, also written by Adam Schlesinger, who recently passed away, who wrote the titular song of it, who also was the, he was the bassist for Fountains of Wayne, and also the main composer and songwriter to the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah, very underrated composer, yeah, was nominated for an Oscar and won Emmys and stuff, very good, I'm sad to hear that he passed. Um, but yeah, especially like the, the Blues Brothers thing in particular is really notable for me because I loved the Blues Brothers when I was a kid and I was like, oh my God, they did this in SNL. It must be great. And then I watched some of those old SNL clips and it is basically just like two white guys showing how good they can be at doing like old blues standards. And it's kind of lame. Like, why do you yeah. like this? Yeah. <laughs> like uh-huh. the actual, like the earlier stuff, like their, their album and shit, like they're just like, this feels weird. But then at least in the movie, they do a bit of that, but also they're just like, hey, how about we give Aretha Franklin or uh, Ray Charles or any of these other actual great musicians? Yeah, Charles Lee Hooker. Uh, and Cap Galloway. Yeah. Cap Galloway, yes. And also, let's let's watch a fun cop movie where we watch a bunch of cops get messed up and a bunch of Nazis get messed up. Oh my god, the car chases in that movie. Uh, dude, the car chases are the best. Awesome. <laughs> out of control. Yes. 
for sure. The only musical where you can pre- probably say that as well, <laughs> or the cartoon yeah. directs is pretty dope. Yeah. I guess who knows. Um, and then we had a bit of feedback from a uh, previous guest and Canadian, who, as we mentioned, would probably be uh, playing hockey with bears at this time, uh, Shaquille Lambert. Uh, he gave us a shout-out about our 100th episode, where he said, shout-out to the homies for hitting 100 episodes, but also for talking about one of my favorite bad movies ever, Book of Henry. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> Good lord. Uh, but thank you, Shaquille. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Shaq. We gotta have you back on, man. I know we were supposed to, but obviously... You know, COVID happened, so, but we'll get you on. We'll get you back on, me familia, family. We'll make sure that happens. Um, but we oh. want to <laughs> we want to thank some people, uh, like Chris Oliver, for um, the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. Thank you for all submitting that feedback. And, of course, thanks to Mr. Scott Johnson for being on the show. Scott, do you have to plug anything? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott PJ Thoughts. That is Scott with two T's, letter P, letter J, Thoughts. I am also now a contributing writer to True Superhero Fans Only, uh, working with Mr. Thomas here. Uh, been cranking out some fun stuff there, talking about Star Wars and the Marvels and the Kevin Smiths and the like. Uh, and if you're a fan of craft beer and drinking, which, hey, these two movies are built for, uh, you can find me at porchdrinking.com, where I've done some fun write-ups about beers you might want to drink with, say... Uh, this year's uh, Oscar winners and nominees, uh, sh- and even musical shows like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Steven Universe, so check them out. Uh, I, if I had beers to go with these movies, I would say The Apple is a beer I found called uh, Speed of Darkness. That's the by <laughs> Oliver Brewing Company. And you can't get more musical than that, and you're going to need a big, strong beer like Stout to drink, get through this movie. And for Phantom of the Paradise, I would pick a beer like Pliny the Elder, which is a classic genre-defying West Coast IPA that is surprisingly balanced, but memorable and cult-worthy in so many fantastic ways. Wow. Yeah, a little bit of recommendations there for your abiding times, if you can drink legally. Wink! But, um, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. That's where you can, like, ask us about the feedback and stuff every Monday. We share that. And also you can email us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, you can find me on my own individual account at Not the Who's Tommy, where I, uh, post things on Twitter and Instagram as well. And I do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com. And, uh... As well as where I do like movie reviews and stuff, and also at trueSuperheroFans.com, as Scott mentioned, for satirical superhero news. And uh, you can also find Adam uh, basically just hiding, trying to decipher what the Apple is all about, with like, you know, on a torque board with like yarn going everywhere. It's madness. Yeah, yeah, I'm nowhere. Yeah, no, I'm on fucking Facebook under my name. If you want to seek me out there, that's fine. Shoot me a message. We'll talk about anything you want. Uh, or if not, uh, you know, I'll just continue going on and uh, fucking myself. Well, uh, to hear more of Adam fucking himself and also me uh, maybe fucking myself to some degree, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms like even the ESO Network, uh, where you can dig into the archives of you know like all these other shows, or you can even look into our past over at our Podbean original feed where you can find all the shows we even posted before we joined the ESO Network. And uh, we would appreciate if you were to rate, review, or even just share us around because that gives the show more visibility out there. And we want to be visible to all the eyes, including the eyes of the Phantom underneath that helmet. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, with that enthusiasm, it's time to go into our picking for next week, uh, where we decide we're going to do road trip movies, because we can't go outside, so we might as well watch people go outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And really start to get depressed because of it. That's good. <laughs> well, good hopefully. Idea, Thomas. <laughs> hey, if I hey, put on a box on your head, you can go anywhere. That's true. 
our imaginations. We can go anywhere, yes. And uh, I have the two good movies for that particular topic, since we switched off from, you know, doing the opposite this time. I have the two good movies, Adam has the two bad movies, and we've each assigned those a number between 1 and 10, and usually we would each pick a number between 1 and 10 of our own to guess the other one's topic, but when we have a guest like Scott, they go ahead and uh, bite into the apple and choose which uh, film we're going to do. So for Adam, for my two good picks, Scott, number two, one, and ten. I will take a bite and pick number five. All right. So this is a movie I've talked about a bit in terms of it's uh, one of my favorites. I think it's one of Adam's favorites as well. We're going to, I guess, get a bit happy as we can. Uh, we're at number four. I had Planes, Trains, and Automobiles from John Hughes. Oh, God, what a good movie. How delightful. How brighten your day. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a great, great pick. Yeah, and then at number nine, I had another one that would have uh, been delightful, and also had songs from Paul Williams. I had the original Muppet movie. Another great movie. Also fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Good choices there. Good movies to mess around to. Yes. But now, uh, for Adam's two bad choices, Scott. <laughs> number between one and ten. Hmm. I will choose number ten. Okay, at number 10 on the button, I have another Robin Williams movie, RV. Oh, the Barry Sonnenfeld classic? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a movie that trivia, it's one of the few movies I walked out of as, as a youngin. Now, I'm very curious oh, <laughs> to watch the, the entirety. I've been waiting. It's been, what, what like 14 years now? I can't yeah, wait for the secrets. Here's your chance. Yeah. And number one, I had Wild Hogs. Oh. Starring your favorite, John Travolta? <laughs> Yeah, man. Oh, we could, yeah, we could, one of two different uh, old dogs leads movies. <laughs> yes, exactly. I just said fuck it. <laughs> oh well. Uh, Plays, trades, uh, and automobiles nope. in RVs. Okay. And on that note, we've all come to say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the TeePublic store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.